Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motzen. I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are starting a new series with James Jordan, and here he's going to be walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. Do check out those links in the show notes for all upcoming events. We have a regional course coming up in Monroe and in Chicago on singing the Psalms. Peter Lighthart will also be teaching a course in May here in Birmingham. That'll be a regional course on a Friday and Saturday on Kings, Chronicles, and Samuel. And looking forward to this summer, we have our Trinity Feast, as well as our annual Theopolitan Ministry Conference. For more information about all of those events and for registration, there are links in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, uh, <laughs> which I've never taught before, so. But then when you had me do Romans, I'd never taught that before. And that was confusing. <laughs> Tonight, I want to introduce the book, and, and we really did a little of this yesterday, but of course, not all of you were in church yesterday where I was. So I want to talk again about the time in which Paul writes his letters. It's a particular time, and this is an aspect of things that is not uh, noticed very often by New Testament exegetes and books on 1 Corinthians, primarily because for the last a long time, the Christian world has divided itself up into Old Testament scholars and New Testament scholars, and never the twain shall meet. There are all these separate journals for each one. Uh, people who write on the Old Testament feel as if they should never speak on the New Testament, and vice versa, and it makes for problems. And uh, one of the problems is a failure to notice how thoroughly the New Testament is finishing up and filling out Old Testament patterns. And we talked, uh, well, uh, Sunday we talked about some of this, I'm going to talk about it again. Um, we can talk about four phases of the apostolic age. And those four phases we could call the Matthew period, the Mark period, the Luke and Paul period, and the, the jo- Johannine period. And these correspond uh, uh, to the priestly, kingly, prophetic, and then new covenant times in the Bible. Matthew's Gospel, probably written, I believe, immediately after Pentecost. Uh, this was a, a culture of people who lived in towns, read books, went to the synagogue every Saturday and spent hours studying books. This was a culture full of people who believed that immediately after a prophet died, his words were written down for everybody to study. On the day of Pentecost, there were Jews from every nation under heaven. They heard a little itty-bitty bit about Jesus Christ uh, in the message that is summarized for us in Acts chapter 2, but which must have taken the better part of the day in terms of discussion, and then they were all going to go home knowing next to nothing about Jesus. And very soon, all around this area, people would be arguing with each other, he's coming soon, and he's coming in the wilderness. No, he's coming soon, but he's coming in the Holy of Holies. Watch the inner room. And the disciples would have been going all around fixing things. And I just don't think they were dumb enough to have to do that. I think that Matthew was written immediately. And uh, I said, in fact, Matthew is the gospel that tells us that 
the Jews put out the lie that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus and hidden it. Now that's, that's something that you would need to know right away. I mean, that, that's not information that makes a whole lot of sense to say 30 years later. It's information that makes sense to say a month after Pentecost. So, believe that or not, Matthew does come first. Matthew presents Jesus as a new Moses. Matthew's gospel has speeches, long speeches in it, and it follows the five books, the five speeches in Matthew follow the five books of Exodus through Joshua. Exodus through Joshua is one super book. It is one narrative written by one person shortly after the events. It incorporates all the things that Moses had to say, but the narrator is, isn't Moses himself. I mean, if Moses wrote the book of Exodus, he would have said, I did this and I did that. That's what Nehemiah says. Nehemiah says, I went here and I did this and I did that. Daniel says, the Lord appeared to me and I saw this and I did that. Zechariah says, the Lord appeared to me and I asked the angel this. In the, in uh, the book of Acts, when Luke is along, he says, we went here and we went there. So if Moses had written Exodus, and Moses did not write Exodus, okay, nothing in the Bible ever hints that Moses wrote Genesis, nothing in the Bible ever hints that Moses wrote Exodus. Moses wrote down the things that God dictated to him, so Moses wrote most of Leviticus, and he wrote a lot of Exodus, which was stuff God dictated. And Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy. It's a composition from his hand. But the narrative about Moses was probably written by someone else shortly after these events. And you can take Exodus through Joshua, and you can outline it as one large arc where the things at the end match the things at the beginning. And in fact, we don't find out why the Jews were reduced to slavery in Egypt until Joshua 24, which tells us that they worship the Egyptian gods. Ah, well then you go back and you reread the story and it looks quite different. It's kind of like seeing the sixth sense for a second time. You go back and you read Exodus and you read these plagues against these gods and you say, wait a minute, those were our gods. We were worshiping all those gods. When they make a movie like the Ten Commandments and they show all the Hebrews worshiping Yahweh and crying out to the Lord, forget it. Most of them were worshiping those Egyptian gods. The Bible says so. So those judgments weren't, were against the gods of Egypt, but they were our gods. No wonder when we got out in the wilderness we wanted to go back to Egypt. That was home. Those were our gods. We didn't like Yahweh. He was kind of scary. Rightly so. Well, all right. Okay, the first big speech in, in Matthew is the new giving of the law, a sermon on the mount. The next speech is rules for the new Levites. It's like the book of Leviticus. It tells the disciples all the things they're supposed to do when they go out. The fifth speech in Matthew is the conquest of the land. It's what we call the eschatological discourse, and it's about the new conquest of Canaan. It fits with the book of Joshua. So uh, Matthew is mosaic. Okay, And this first time, this initial time in the history of the New Testament is a time of going to the Jews with the new words of the new Moses, focusing in on his priestly service. But, you know, persecution broke out right away. Uh, Paul starts trying to destroy the church. Satan is moving against the church, and the church is scattered out. As I pointed out to you Sunday in the book of Acts, we have two parts in the book. The Acts gives us the gospel going to the Jews and then going to the oikumene, 
or the empire that is around Israel, about which we'll speak in a moment. Paul's the one who goes there. Jesus says to the Jewish disciples, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, and to the uttermost parts of the land. And that's where those people went. And they had done their work by the year 44. At least they'd made a good start on it. We had gone to Samaria. We had touched an Ethiopian who had come up to visit, just like in the Old Testament. Peter had gone to Caesarea on the coastland, which is still part of the Old Testament land. And we had basically, the 12 Jewish disciples, had done the work of going to the Jewish part of the world. Uh, sometime in this, uh, Mark's gospel is written. Mark presents Jesus as David, a man of action immediately doing this, immediately doing that, healing people by his hand. And, uh, and he presents Herod as a king. Herod actually was not a king uh, in the Romans and Greek sense of the word, but in the Hebrew sense of the word, Melech, you could call him a king. And Mark wants to see Herod, wants us to see Herod as King Saul, persecuting David and trying to kill him. Is this up too high? I exploded into this lapel mic. Okay. Hey, you know, I don't care. It keeps you awake. So Mark, Mark, you know, Herod is the guy who's going to arrest James and put Peter to death. So Herod is starting to be a real tyrant. And it makes sense for Mark's gospel to have written just before that happened as a way of presenting Jesus as one who suffered under another Herod. Uh, and that's his theme. And then we come in the book of Acts to what we call the death and resurrection of Peter. Peter is thrown into jail. An angel comes and opens the door. He comes. He appears to a woman, Rhoda. Rhoda goes back and tells the disciples they don't believe her because she's a woman after all. And then uh, he appears in their midst, speaks to them, and then goes away. And that's exactly clocking exactly what Jesus did in his resurrection. And that's it for Peter. Peter has one more thing to say in the book of Acts, and that's at the Jerusalem Council. But he's off the scene. And then we go to Paul. And Paul goes out of this Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the land where we're traveling over land and we're dealing with the original land. He goes out into this broader area, which the New Testament calls the oikumene or oikumene. It's the land around the land. And we need to know something about this. This is not the general Gentile world. Paul does not go out into the general Gentile world. He goes out to a very specific land that God set up in the book of Daniel. Remember in Daniel? We have the land around the land. And in Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, what we're told is after the exile... There's going to be a much smaller land for the Jews to live in, but it's going to be a holy land. It never was a holy land before. It was a land of promise, a land of milk and honey. Now it's a holy land. And there's going to be a holy city. It never was a holy city before. It was the city of David. But now, in the book of Nehemiah, when the holy city is set back up, Nehemiah stations Israelites all around at the doors and walls exactly the same way that the Levites had been stationed around the holy temple in Solomon's day. So now the city is holy. All the people are holier than they used to be. Plus, all of these Israelites 
are now royal people. Before, only the tribe of Judah was the royal tribe. But now, they're all called Judahites, which we contract to Jew, okay, Juden in European languages. But you see, all of the Israelites are now counted as part of the royal tribe of Judah. So there's this upgrade in holiness, upgrade in royalty, upgrade in status. Now you don't have to be a Levite to be a president of a synagogue. Any man can be a president of a synagogue because everybody's been lifted up in holiness. So this new situation is we have the land, the holy land, and then we have the land around the land, which in the New Testament is called oikumene. And in your, in your Bible, it's translated world which is really a mess. Thanks a whole lot, guys. Because they also translate the word cosmos. Now, cosmos means the whole world, the whole globe. But oikumene, sometimes your Bible will say inhabited earth, but that's not what it means. It means the empire that God set up. It's God's empire. And there's an angel in charge of it. Who's the angel that's in charge of Israel in the book of Daniel? Michael. It's another name for the angel of the Lord or for Jesus. Who's the angel who's in charge of the empire that God set up? There's only one other angel in the Bible, folks. Gabriel. It's Gabriel who comes and talks to Daniel and tells him the future of the Oikumene. Which gospel does Gabriel appear in? Luke, that's right, doesn't appear anywhere else. Luke is the gospel to the Oikumene. Luke starts off by telling us that this was in the reign of Caesar Augustus. Luke points out that it was in the reign of Quirinius. Uh, He gives us all the details about the land around the land. Now, this land around the land, that's actually the new land that God says he wants his people to minister in. All the people are priests in the Holy Land to minister in the Oikumene Empire land. First, it's administered by the Babylonians. Then when they blow it, it's administered by the Persians. Then it's administered by the Greeks in the north and the south. Then it's administered by the Romans. And that's where we are now. And we're at the last part of that time. Now, this is going to sound radical, but the New Testament, the New Testament as a literary document, is only interested in the Jews and the Greeks of the Oikumene. When you read about Greeks in the New Testament, it means a citizen of the Oikumene. It doesn't mean somebody who speaks Greece, Greek. It doesn't mean somebody who's greasy. It doesn't mean somebody who's from Greece. It means a citizen of this land around the land. Sometimes Paul says Jew and Gentile. That means Jews and everybody else. Sometimes he says Jews and Greeks and barbarians. That means Jews and land around the land folks and everybody else. You've got to understand that. The Oikumene is a specific land. New Testament says the gospel is going to go to the whole Oikumene and then the world is going to come to an end. It did. The old world did. And if you don't make that distinction, you get real confused about New Testament eschatology. Paul says in in his letters, words about you have gone out to the entire world. Huh, to Australia? No, the word there is oikumene. Words about you have gone out to the entire oikumene. 
Okay, we got to get it to the Greeks, the citizens of the Oikumene. God had promised the gospel would come to the Jews, and then it would come to this special land that he had set up, and then it would go everywhere else. Well, the going everywhere else part is, well, it's in this part of the book right here. Okay? Because up to this point in the book... We're concerned with finishing out the first part of it, and then it begins to push us, tells us the millennium starts, the gospel is going to go everywhere else, but Paul is ministering in this land around the land. In addition, the three Old Testament phases that are being fulfilled here, okay, they are there, and now the fulfillment in Christ and in the Spirit, in the kingdom is happening. The priestly Mosaic time, the kingly Davidic time around the Gospel of Mark, and then the prophetic age, and the prophetic age is associated with Paul. The prophetic age of the Old Testament has two phases. First, it comes with the remnant, which is initiated by Elijah and followed up by Elisha. Then it comes in its second phase in the restoration after the exile. And the prophetic age is the foot time. You have the ear time. We looked at this Sunday. The person wants to be admitted into the kingdom of Israel after being leprous. He's anointed on his ear, his thumb and his foot, and then on his head for his whole body. And this is the order in which these things, Matthew, ear, Luke, hand, Paul, uh, uh, Mark, hand, and then Luke and Acts, feet, going places. Where did this start? It starts with something really radical, bizarre, strange, and almost deeply weird. It's not fully deep weird. But let's see if you can pick it up. In, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah has been very successful in his demonstration against the, uh, the uh, uh, prophets of Baal. And then Jezebel responds by murdering all the prophets who were in the caves. And so Elijah is the only prophet left in the land. And he is exhausted. And so he makes a 40-day journey out into the wilderness to Mount Sinai where Moses was. And he's fed by angels uh, he's given manna, uh, bread, and water, just like in the original Exodus from Egypt, because this is another Exodus from Egypt. And he goes out there, and he says to the Lord, Look, they have killed all the prophets, they've torn down your altars, and I am the only one left. And the Lord says to him, Yes, you're the only prophet left, but there's 7,000 believers left, and you need to go back, set up a theological seminary, a school of the prophets, and raise up some new guys. And then God appears to him. And God appears uh, in uh, preceding God is a storm, wind, and an earthquake, and other things. There are three things that precede the arrival of the Lord. And Elijah is told to do three things, and these three things are preceding the arrival of the Lord. And there's a whole lot of stuff going on here that's really cool and interesting that I would like to talk about, except that I was told to talk about 1 Corinthians. So you'll just have to, you know... But check it out sometime. You know, it says, before the Lord comes by, there's a great wind, and then uh, there's an earthquake, and then there's a fire. And God says, I want you to go and anoint Hazael king over Syria, 
anoint Jehu king over Israel and Elisha as prophet. Now those things correspond. See, these three things precede the coming of the Lord. Now did you notice which thing is really weird? Oh, gave it down. I just read it. I just read the, the weird. I'll read it again. When you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Syria. Jehu the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel. Mahola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Well, we've had prophets anointed before, and we've had kings of Israel anointed before. But when have we ever had a Gentile king anointed? Never. The word anoint means to make into a Messiah. It's the same language as used for anointing David. This is God's own king. And this is the first time God is reaching out and saying, Hey, you know what? I think I'll just take Syria and pick that fruit and add it to my basket. Not just Israel, but now we're going to anoint prophet's going to go over and pour sacred anointing oil on the head of Hazael and claim that nation. This is the beginning of the foot time, okay, where we're going out and we're starting to claim other places. And from this time forward, that's, that's the radical change. You see, you didn't even notice it, but that's big, huge radical change in history. Never before has God done this, okay. This is the beginning, the very, the very teeny-weeny beginning teeny-weeny beginning of the new age where all the nations are claimed, okay, starts here. From this time on, after Elijah and Elisha, we get the writing prophets, and the writing prophets start sending messages out to these nations round about. They start condemning them, claiming them. Jonah goes over to Assyria and says to the Ninevites, hey, 40 days you're destroyed. And uh, they repent, and their destruction is postponed. We have to come to the book of Nahum. When God says you're going to be destroyed, you are going to be destroyed. Okay? Well, that's the message of the prophets, and so now we get to the message of the prophets. Okay? These messages are sent out to these various countries roundabout, and after the exile, well, actually starting with the exile, God organizes these countries into his empire. Okay, In the remnant time, individual messages out to these other countries. Starting with Daniel, those countries are organized under Nebuchadnezzar, and then Cyrus, Alexander, so forth. The, the geography shifts a little bit, but the idea of an empire organizing all these places takes place. Important shift in redemptive history, covenant history, because this is when the New Testament happens. It happens in that world, a world with a holy land and a land around the land, and you have to remember that. Now, the message of the, of the apostles, uh, not the apostles, it is the message. The message of the prophets is that you're going to be destroyed. You've sinned. God has had it. It's five minutes until midnight. Destruction's coming. You're going into exile. You're going to die. You're going to sink down to the bottom of the sea, all of you. And that's going to happen. And so the people say, but what if we repent? Can Maybe the destruction won't come after all. And the disciples say, repent all you want. The destruction is still going to come. 
Now, you might postpone it a little bit, but it's going to come. Now, say, we have in our heads from somewhere that we can read Isaiah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk and these other prophets, and what they say is, because of your sin, destruction is going to come. But if you repent, if you repent, the destruction won't come. That's not the message of the prophets. Now, I told you all this last time I was here, and we went through the twelve. Okay, I'm telling you again. That's not the message of the prophets. The message of the prophets is death is coming and there's resurrection on the other side. That's the hope. The hope is not to avert judgment. The hope is to be there when the resurrection happens on the other side. You might postpone it. As I say, Jonah goes to to Nineveh and he says, In 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. So they destroy themselves. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They bury themselves. They put themselves into a death situation. They don't eat food. Well, that's death right there, isn't it? No donuts? Sounds like death to me. Okay? And so God says, okay, but he doesn't say destruction's not going to happen. It's just postponed. We come back around to the book of Nahum, and Nahum says, okay, destruction's coming now. Now, you know, you know that exactly the same thing happened to Israel in 2 Kings chapter 21. Verses 10 to 15. 2 Kings 21, 10 to 15. This is evil King Manasseh who ruled the land for 55 years and who destroyed every single copy of the Bible in an attempt to wipe out all knowledge of God and uh, God had preserved one dusty, moldy copy hidden in an inner room in the temple to be found later on. But this is Manasseh. And everybody was happily cooperating with Manasseh. They loved him. He was just the kind of king they wanted. And so in chapter 21, verse 10 of Second Kings, Now Yahweh spoke through his servants the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh king of Judah has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites who were before him, and also has made Judah sin with his idols, therefore thus says Yahweh God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, In other words, I'll do to Jerusalem the same thing I did to the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I'm going to nuke them. And I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. They shall become as plunder and spoil of all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the days their fathers came from Egypt even to this day. Okay? But then Josiah comes along. And Josiah leads a big national reformation. He rebuilds the temple. He puts to death all the people who are worshiping uh, Yahweh on idol shrines. And everything is good. And there's a revival. And Jeremiah, and, uh, 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 Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Nahum, and Zephaniah are all there with him leading this revival. And then, after he dies, have a couple of bad kings... And then in chapter 24, this is what we read. In the days of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years and then turned and rebelled against him. So the bad king of Judah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And you know, Daniel was right there at Nebuchadnezzar's side. Nebuchadnezzar was already starting to convert. So that's why the wicked king Jehoiakim rebelled against him. 
because Satan stirred him up to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, who was on his way to becoming a servant of the Lord. And Yahweh sent against the wicked king Jehoiakim bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, and bands of Ammonites. He sent them against Judah to destroy it. According to the word of Yahweh that he has spoken through his servants, the prophets, surely at the mouth of Yahweh it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, because of all that he had done. And also for the innocent blood that he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and Yahweh would not forgive. Now, it wasn't just Manasseh, it was everybody along with him who did these things. And the book of Jeremiah fills out some of the details here. But what you see in this is, when God says judgment's coming, you can repent and you can postpone it, but you're not going to change it. It's going to come. So what is the promise that the apostles, the apostles, I keep saying that because they're the same people. What is the promise that the, that the prophets give? Well, over and over again, they say judgment is coming, but there's this glorious resurrection on the other side. Someday, you know, on the other side of this judgment, the plowman, uh, the reaper will overtake the plowman and there'll be just wine flowing everywhere and honey everywhere and donuts everywhere. Everything's going to be great. And you'll have this giant temple that's built. The mountain of the Lord will be even higher than all the other mountains. Uh, the nations will come in and start listening to things, all of which happened after the exile. Well, then, what does that mean? What is the word? What is the word to the people who are facing this? Real simple, and it's one that you know. It's the just will live by faith. Now you see, when Habakkuk says, when the Lord says to Habakkuk, the just will live by faith, he does not mean that as an abstract theory of how you get saved. It's true that it's related to salvation, everything is. But what he specifically means is, judgment and death are coming, but the man who is just and faithful will find resurrection life on the other side. If you are faithful through the judgment, you will come to life on the other side. That's what the shall live means here. It's Seth in Habakkuk. See, God comes to Habakkuk and says, I'm bringing in the Chaldeans and I'm going to clean the clock. Of Jerusalem, I'm going to wipe you out. I'm going to turn you into a just glass bowl here after the H-bomb goes off. There's going to be nothing left. Okay? You're done. It's over. And Habakkuk says, yeah, but they're worse than we are. And God says, well, let me tell you how to think about this. Habakkuk 2, verse 2, Yahweh answered me and said, record the vision, inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. Okay, that one may read it fluently or there's a variety of ways to understand that. The vision is going to come. It's for the appointed time. I've appointed the time. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail. Even if it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. What's he talking about? He's talking about this destruction that's coming. As for the proud one, could could easily be the wicked king of Judah. His soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by his faithfulness. Now that's the context in which he says it. Okay, destruction is coming. If you want to live, 
If you're one of the righteous and you want to live, live through this and come to the life on the other side, then maintain your faithfulness. Now, the reason I point that out is that Paul quotes that. And when Paul quotes it, he's quoting it in the same historical context. See, Paul's epistles don't were not written in the year 1000. They weren't written yesterday. They were written at the time of the world crisis. Jesus repeatedly announced that on as soon as he left the world, the world crisis was going to start. He said, I'm about to leave and I'm going to ascend to heaven. And when I ascend to heaven, I'm going to sit down behind the console. And I'm going to look around and I'm going to push the war button. Then I'm going to push the rumors of war button. I'm going to push the earthquake button and the flood button and the famine button. But those are just the beginnings of things. Then I'm going to push the total destruction of Jerusalem button. After the tsunami button and the hurricane button and all the other buttons. that Jesus is still up in heaven pushing those buttons. You know, tsunamis and things don't happen without Jesus sending them. After all, Yahweh's uncomfortable. It would be nice to have these pagan gods who always do what you say. If you give them a big enough gift, the tsunami god will leave you alone. But Jesus is a little bit, he's got bigger plans. We have to fear God and have the first part of wisdom. Well, that's what Jesus said. He said, it's coming. It's going to come on this generation. All these things will happen on this generation, he said. Half the parables he told were about that. Right? Rich man gave a wedding feast and invited people to come in. Then he'd burn their city down. Over and over again. Well, now Paul knows this. All the disciples know this. They know the world is coming to an end. They know the world is going to end in their generation. They know that the stars are going to fall out of the heavens, meaning the powers of the nations. They know that the sun is going to be eclipsed and turn black and dress itself in mourning in black sackcloth. They know the moon is going to turn to blood. It's going to be killed and covered with blood. All the powers of the earth are going to be shaken down sometime during their lifetime. They knew this. Your average evangelical may not know this, but they knew it. Okay? They knew it, and every single letter that Paul writes is in that context. Paul is writing to people who know that it's just going to be another decade or so before this happens. So Paul has got the same message that those prophets had. All of Paul's letters, and really Peter's and all the rest of them, are in a context whether they say it on every page or not, it's in a context of saying, it's all going to die. But if you are faithful, there's resurrection on the other side. But God is going to end the oikumene that he set up in the days of Daniel, and he is going to end Israel that he set up in the days of Abraham. Because the purpose has been fulfilled. Now the church is here. Jesus is here. It's going to come in this generation. Now, I have to say this, even though it puts me in an odd position, but you can look far and wide for commentaries on the Pauline letters that start by taking this into account. Most of them are written by Amils or various people or premills who when they read Paul talking about the future judgments think they're talking about the end of the present age. But he's not. Okay? He's not talking about. He's saying the things are near. That wrath has come upon the Jews to the uttermost. All of his language is this generation. Only occasionally 
Like in 1 Corinthians 15, does he point further, way off to the end of the present age when Jesus returns for the last time? Well, what did the apostles know? And what did they think about it? Well, if it's going to happen in one generation, what is a generation? Well, depends on how you count. But all these men knew from the Old Testament that there were a lot of 40-day and 40-year periods. And I'll bet you anything that if you could, if Peter and James and John and Paul were standing here and you said, guys, when do you think Jesus is going to come back and clean the clock of Jerusalem, wipe it out, and wipe out the Roman Empire and completely change the thing over and end the oikumene. When do you think that's going to happen? I think they would all say, well, you know, we're all pretty convinced that it's going to happen 783 years from the foundation of the city of Rome. Okay? Rome was founded in 753 B.C. Add 70 years to that, and you got 823. I bet you they knew anything that it was going to happen in what we call A.D. 70. They didn't know the day or the hour. But there's plenty of evidence that they actually would have thought that. Paul, the book of Revelation, the other writers are very self-conscious about presenting the apostolic age as another wilderness period. A period that you've left Egypt, but you haven't yet come to the promised land. The book of Hebrews is written this way. In Hebrews Well, excuse me, when we came out of Egypt originally, we came out as Israelites and a mixed multitude. And how are we arranged in the camp in the wilderness? Well, here are the Israelites, the Israelite camp around the tabernacle, and around them is the mixed multitude, the uncircumcised. Sound familiar? Holy Land, oikumene. Israelites, mixed multitude. That's what it looked like for 40 years. But during those 40 years, these people started to blend together. And at the end of those 40 years, there was no longer a mixed multitude. And there were no longer any Jews. The only Israelites who were left were Joshua and Caleb. That was it. Because to be an Israelite, you have to be circumcised. Now, they didn't circumcise in the wilderness. So when they got to the Jordan River after 40 years, there were no longer any Jews, and there were no longer any Gentiles. Everybody was the same. And then they all circumcised themselves and became a new Israel. And this new Israel was made up of Israelites who came out of Egypt, and Africans, and Europeans, and all the other mixed multitude who came out of Egypt were made together into this new Israel. And during those 40 years, they blended together. Now, that's exactly what Paul is doing in his epistles. He's saying, Jews, hey, they're gone. Gentiles, they're only defined as opposition to Jews. They're gone. And you guys have got all mixed together and blend together, the strong and the weak, and become one new man, and that is going to happen definitively with the destruction of Jerusalem, which will end the whole thing. And now, from that point on, everybody will be the same. Paul self-consciously knows that he's reworking the wilderness experience, and he knows it lasted 40 years. The book of Hebrews, which is written by Paul, You may disagree, but you're wrong. 
In Hebrews 3 and 4, the whole purpose of this thing is, he says, you haven't quite yet entered into the rest. He says, the rest, by rest I mean, like when you came out of Egypt and you spent 40 years in the wilderness and then Joshua led you into the promised land and gave you rest. Except that that wasn't quite it. And so he says, this is what we're doing right now. We're going through 40 years and at the end of this wilderness journey, which the author of Hebrews would have thought, hey, 80, 70, 40 years after Pentecost, you will enter into rest. You'll enter into the new phase. All of these New Testament writers are thinking of Egypt as the place where they have left. The book of Revelation says there were 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel plus a mixed multitude that no man could number who were set apart. And they have left the old city, which is spiritually Sodom and Egypt, and they have come out of it. So the whole consciousness of the New Testament writers is, Egypt is where you were. You have left it. we got 40 years here. When we come to the end, we're going to enter into the promised land. Where are the 40 years spent? The 40 years are spent in the Holy Land, up to Acts 12, Got to have a conquest and a mission there. And then the Oikumene, the land around the land, down to the end of the book of Acts, down to A.D. 70, and then we enter into the new land, which is the whole rest of the world. Now, I am myself personally convinced that the original twelve apostles never left the land. They stayed there. Jesus said to them, when you guys see the pilgrim hosts around Jerusalem, flee to the mountains. They were supposed to stay there, and they did. Peter didn't go to Rome. He stayed there. He stayed in Babylon, which is Jerusalem. Zechariah 5 tells us that. So they stayed there, and Paul, in the book of Acts and in his letters, he's going only to this imperial place. The movement out to the rest of the world happens after that, and all the stuff in the New Testament then applies to us, but it's written specifically into this situation of the crisis. So I think that they all knew that the end of the old world would be 40 years after Pentecost, which it pretty much was. The Julio-Claudian line of emperors collapsed in utter destruction around the year 67. We had total chaos in Rome for about three years. Uh, during that time, there were three different emperors, and finally, the a completely different imperial line took over just before the year 70 and began a new Rome. As, as a matter of fact, Nero had burned the old Rome, and so they had to build a new Rome at this time. And Eugen Rosenstock, Husey, and others have pointed out that the entire Roman aristocracy had been murdered or else had totally moved out of the city and relocated by the year 70 A.D. So the entire old Rome was gone by then. And, of course, the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 ended that part of it. They didn't know the day or the hour, but they knew something would happen in 70. Now, what about Corinthians? The book of 1 Corinthians, the letter, first letter to the Corinthians that Paul writes, and I'm almost done, but I got till 8 o'clock. Uh, I got three more minutes here. This letter is not highly concerned about the immediate eschatological horizon. 
But that does overshadow it like everything else. Paul is writing to people who are thinking of themselves as living at the beginning of the new world and simultaneously at the end of the old world. And these people don't always know what to do. Okay? Letter to the first, first letter to the Corinthians, as we all know who have ever read it, is Paul constantly setting them straight about stuff that they're confused about. Now the question is, how'd they get confused about this? Alright? Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to teach as if, because I believe this is true, that all of these people in the Corinthian church were in Egypt in the synagogue. There were Jews there, and there were uncircumcised God-fearers there. There are loads and loads and loads of uncircumcised God-fearers all the way through the Old Testament. And there are loads of them in the New Testament. And tomorrow morning, we will read uh, from the book of Acts about the formation of the church at Corinth, and you'll see that there are a lot of God-fearers there. But these were not pagans. These were first, second, third generation believers in the God of Israel. They were saved. Okay, They were like Cornelius, a guy that worshipped God. They were like Lydia, a God-worshipper, a God-fearer, and a seller of purple, whom the Lord opened her heart to believe in Jesus, but she was already a believer in the biblical religion. And in truth, if she died a week before, she'd have gone to heaven. Okay, these are God-fearers. All of these people were coming out, Jews and God-fearers together, and that is what the New Testament is about. It is not about going to sheer out-and-out pagans who don't know anything. Acts chapter 17 gives us a picture of that when Paul talks to the philosophers at Corinth and Athens. The conversion of the Philippian jailer is an instance of that. But if you read carefully, you will see that almost all the Gentile conversions in the book of Acts and in the New Testament are actually God-fearers. It was not till eighty seventy that we really move out of that situation. And for that reason, N.T. Wright, although he's right about many things, is wrong about this, although this is very commonly said. Most of the Christians in Corinth had not been Jews, but ordinary pagans. They had been Gentiles believing in various gods and goddesses. He says that's where the problems in Corinth come from. Many others say as well. I say no. None of these people were pagans. None of them worshipped other gods and goddesses. They had been for quite some time God-fearers, synagogue attenders. They worshipped the God of Israel. And all the problems in the first in the, the Corinthians are having, none of them are caused by pagan influences. All of them are caused by the fact that we have moved into a new age and we don't know exactly what to do. If we're not under the law anymore... And how about those laws about sexuality in men and women? If we're not under the law anymore, can women be priests? If we're not under the law anymore, then what does that mean about taking other believers to court? Do we have our own courts? Or can we go to pagan courts? Nowadays, gosh, if we can drink wine with the Lord, maybe we drink too much wine. Okay? What about food sacrificed to idols? What do we do with that now that the new age has come? Should we not do that or do that? There are a lot of questions, but all those questions in the book come about as a result of confusion over what coming into the new age means. 
It don't come about as a result of confusion with pagan woman cults or something like this in Corinth. No, they're confusions about the new age. The other thing that's interesting about 1 Corinthians is all the things that he talks about in this book are the very beginning things. They're the beginnings of a new age. Go back to the Garden of Eden. What's going on there? The relationship of men and women. Big matter in Corinthians. Okay? Food. The tree of life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Big thing in 1 Corinthians. The Lord's Supper. Meat sacrifice to idols. Okay? Who is the priest? Adam or Eve? Big question in 1 Corinthians. Okay? The whole business of women completely covering up their hair if they are going to do any leadership thing in a worship service at all. And then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means wisdom. And the first uh, book of 1 Corinthians starts with a long discussion of wisdom, what real wisdom is. And then there's the whole question of death and resurrection, which is right there in Genesis 2. The day you eat of this tree, you will die. And even before then, put Adam into death sleep, tear him in half, make a woman out of, out of him, <laughs> and then he's glorified. All right? Look, God could have said, Hey, Adam, now that you realize you need a wife, stand still, this won't hurt a bit. And then make Eve. That's not what he did. He put him into death sleep, tore him in half, then he's resurrected and glorified. Right? Because the woman is the glory of the man. And that's in 1 Corinthians. So the whole business of death and resurrection and glorification comes up. All these things in 1 Corinthians are stuff about the beginning of a new world and addressed to people who are confused about what it means to be going into a new world. It's not a context of pagan influence. It's a context of newness and new ageitudinousness. So that's the way I'm going to teach it. That's the way I see it. Uh, that doesn't mean that everything in traditional commentaries is wrong. But I do think it's a mistake to try to read those problems as if they're caused by pagans. That's not where the problems in Corinth come from. They're the result of confusion over what it means to be Christians when you've been Jews your whole life. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.